How is your heart today? Good morning, Clearview Community Church Online. I am Pastor Zach, the associate pastor of our Wasega campus. When is the last time somebody asked you that question? How is your heart today? Wherever you are, whenever you're watching this, I want you to just take a moment, pause, breathe, and think about that. How is your heart today? This is a question that my wife often asks our four-year-old daughter at the end of the day as she's getting ready for bed just to help her learn to articulate her feelings and experiences of the day. It's an amazing thing and it's been a great tool and I think sometimes as adults, we can go way too long in between times where we actually look inward to try to reflect on how we're doing. As adults, we have a similar question but often has a very different impact. We look at someone and say, hey, how are you? Generally, we respond with good, fine, Maybe you're talking to someone that you have a crush on and you're like, better now that you're here. Or can't complain. Trust me, I've tried. No one wants to listen. Often we just go through the motions and don't really think about how we're doing and what's going on. Or we just assume that it's better to go through the niceties and not really burden people with our issues. What is the heart? When we're talking about the heart, what is it that you often picture? I assume the first thing that came to mind wasn't a physical organ inside of your chest pumping blood, unless maybe you have an issue with your heart and that's top of mind for you a lot. Most of the time when we think about the heart, we're thinking about our emotions, our feelings. We say someone's wearing their heart on their sleeves when they're bad at hiding their emotions. We tell people to follow their heart and relate it to our inner desires. Here in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the matters of the heart, the enemies of the heart, the realities of the heart, as we followed Jesus' interaction with a variety of different groups. And today, I wanted to pause and take a little moment to reflect on what is our heart, and do we actually take care of it? Are we protecting it and managing it in a way that helps us to function as healthy and whole individuals? And is the way that we understand the heart the same as what Jesus did because 2,000 years ago, they thought of things a little bit differently. They did understand that there was a physical organ, but one of the bigger differences that they had is that they didn't actually have any word or understanding of the concept of a brain. So when the Israelite person talked about the heart, it was everything that we usually associate with the heart and the mind. In Deuteronomy, there's a prayer that they would often pray that has the love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you may remember this verse in the New Testament. Some of the writers add the word all your mind in there because that's when the concept of mind and heart being separate was coming into existence. And so this prayer that Jews would pray every day, their heart en encompassed everything that they were. Their wisdom, their ability to discern between truth and error. The feelings, their desires, their ambitions everything that they were that guided them through life was their heart. So it's no wonder that the Proverbs famously writes, guard your heart because from it flows your entire life. So how do we guard our hearts? I think there's basically two different things we have to guard our hearts from. We guard it from others and the outer experiences that we walk through and we have to guard it sometimes from ourselves. We all experience hurt from others or disappointments from the world around us, and that can harden our hearts, make us cold and callous, 
And sometimes when we mess up, we make mistakes and we start to look at ourselves differently as not worthy, as not good enough. And that can also taint our heart. In the Bible, whenever I think of the concept of the heart and how are we going to follow and tie our hearts with that of God's, the first person that comes to mind is this guy named David. David is famously referred to as the man after God's own heart. Both in his own life and people who remembered him hundreds and thousands of years later would refer to him over and over and over as the man after God's own heart. He grew up running and helping out with a family business. His dad owned land and had animals and David would take care of the sheep. While he was out in the fields, he would praise God, spend time with God and just sit trying to understand who God was. Later, he'd be anointed king and he went through one of the most difficult seasons of life while he was being physically hunted down by the previous king who was saying to himself, I'm not gonna let this little punk and his harp take my spot on the throne. And despite that, David was able to guard his heart. His connection with God and the heart of God allowed him to stop himself from becoming jaded, from becoming angry, even in times where vengeance was offered freely to him. He had opportunities he could have killed the man who was hunting him and he chose not to, to do the right thing and take that step back. But that's not the most interesting part of his story. Today I want to dive into a place where David makes some poor choices, maybe the most poor choice of his entire life. I want to see how as he walked through that, he continued to be referred to as a man after God's own heart. So I'm going to read a passage in 2 Samuel 12. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one who was rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb. He had bought it and raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared food and drink. Basically, the sheep was like a child to him. Now a traveler came one day to the rich man's house, stayed with the rich man, and the rich man wanted to prepare a meal for him. Yet when he went to prepare, he didn't take one of his own sheep. He took the ewe that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. Now hearing this, David burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan looks at him straight in the eye and he says, you are that man. It's a bit of a weird story. <laughs> We're kind of dropping in the middle of a longer scene and I want to take a minute just to jump back. What is it that Nathan is referring to? What is it that he's speaking to? He's kind of now tricked David a little bit by using this parable, this story, to mirror something that David himself had just done. Just one chapter earlier, David is at home in a time where he should probably be out leading armies and being a king. He's kind of sleeping in, relaxing. He goes out, he sees a beautiful woman. You may know her name already, it's Bathsheba, and he learned that she was married when he sent for her. Despite that, he still gets her to come. They end up sleeping together. A little while later, he finds out that she's pregnant. Dramatic music. And he tries to get her husband to come back, tries to get him to sleep with her. 
so that the timelines and things line up and no one knows the mistake that he had made. But her husband Uriah is an honorable man and he refuses to break solidarity with his fellow soldiers. He's like, I can't go home and be with my family when my fellow soldiers are still out there risking their lives for the good of our kingdom, for the good of the will of God in our area fighting against these evil men. And so he stays outside and sleeps outside. And no matter what David did, he could not convince Uriah to go home. And how does David respond to this good, righteous, upstanding citizen who is willing to put his own needs aside in order to do what is best for God's kingdom, for the kingdom of David? David sends word to the generals to basically set up Uriah and his line for an ambush. So as he goes back into war, he falls into an enemy trap. He's set at the front alone, and Uriah, along with some of his other soldiers, fall. After Bathsheba mourns, David takes her to be his wife, and the child is born to them. It's a weird, weird story. And every time I read it, one of the verses that jumps out to me the most is chapter 11, verse 27. It says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And I think to myself, no, really? You think that sleeping with somebody else's wife, someone who's serving you, trying to trick them, failing to trick them, having them killed, that might displease God? Yeah, maybe, maybe just a little bit. And the, the crazy part of this story is that despite this, as it goes past this, we still hear David being referred to as a man after God's own heart. I feel like when we mess up, hopefully none of you have messed up quite this bad, but all of us mess up. And I think that it can cause us to see ourselves as less than, as failures. So often when I've talked to people about God or try to help them understand Jesus, they say things like, well, you know, I don't think God would really want anything to do with me. I promise you he did. If David could still be a man after God's own heart after this, then you certainly have room to reconnect with God. So I have four things that we're going to jump through super quick as we think about this story. All of them start with the letter R. First, rebelled. David rebelled pretty dramatically, right? He did something that displeased God. This isn't a little thing. This isn't like, oh, I was supposed to be fasting today, but I really like a granola bar. No, he did this list of incredibly terrible things, each one almost worse than the one that followed. He messed up big. We all rebel. We all do things we shouldn't do. We all make mistakes. That does not disqualify us from having hearts after God. Something that is still pivotal in the story, our second thing, is that he recognized the mistake. Despite the fact that he was probably trying to convince himself, as we all do, that, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to figure it out. It's not that bad. When he hears Nathan tell this story, basically describing what he's done, but using characters that didn't refer to him, he is objectively, objectively still able to see that this is bad. It says that he burns with anger. That anger builds in him and allows him to respond in that way. He says, this person must pay for what they have done. When Nathan looks at him and says, you 
are this person. That anger David is feeling, he realizes is actually an anger he should be directing at himself. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. So often we immediately jump to justifying our mistakes, explaining ourselves, trying to find a way out of taking ownership for the mistakes that we have made. Here, David doesn't do that. He realizes the mistake and he repents. I've worked with students a lot in my time, working in churches, even in other areas in the community. And one thing kids try to do a lot and teens try to do even more is to get out of trouble. And the amount of stories I've heard and the ridiculous lengths that people will go to to try to avoid getting in trouble, uh, it's just crazy. Once there was this boy, he's about 12 years old, he was coming home from school and he was supposed to go straight to a baseball game. And his parents had reminded him a few times that morning to take his key with him because they weren't going to be there when he got home. And despite all those remindings, as he came to his house, he realized that he didn't have his house key. His parents were supposed to meet him at the game and he couldn't be late. His coach had already warned him multiple times that he wasn't taking things seriously and he knew that he would be benched. One of the worst things that can happen to a young kid on a team. And so he looks and sees that his bedroom window is open. He grabs his dad's ladder, shimmies it, lines it perfectly up with his window. And as he climbs, feeling the metal bars in his hands, he feels a sense of pride that he had overcome the consequences for his actions. When he gets to the top, he's met with his nemesis, the screen. Now taking a screen out from the outside of a window is a little complicated and he manages to do it, but not without significantly damaging the screen. Instead of coming clean or trying to figure out how to apologize to his parents, he doubles down. He decides that he's gonna take it and bury it in the grass clippings that are from mowing the lawn the day prior. His dad is a little allergic to the grass and he figures, who's gonna look there? After the game, as he's coming home, he's like, yes, I got away with it. I had a good game. Everything came together. I don't have to deal with these consequences anymore. And as he opens the front door, right there in his entryway is the mangled screen. And he looks up, catches his mother's eyes and realizes by the look on her face that the rest of his day is not going to go well. And I think often this is what happened when we look inward, when we follow our own heart, our own intuitions. So often things can go from better to bad, to not great, to terrible and worse and worse and worse we fall. But David here, he's able to repent, to take ownership, to be humble. And because of that, our fourth R, he was reconciled. Nathan looks at him and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I think almost every movie and show that I have watched has someone struggling with attention, a battle within them, whether to do maybe what seems like the obviously better choice or following what they want. Whether it's a right thing and what they want, or it's just the thing that's more stable that gives them the better job but it's not really what they want. And so often in these stories, people tell them, look inside your heart, follow your heart. And a lot of time in, in our culture, in our day, we look at our heart as if it's some sort of guiding force that will lead us to happiness. People in the, the biblical writings have a little bit of a different perspective. 
There's a guy named Jeremiah. He's a prophet who was trying to help steer Israel out of a really bad season where they were just doing terrible, terrible things. And he writes that the heart of a human is deceitful above all. It is irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? And over and over and over, the people who were bringing the heart of God knew that in order for us to do right, in order for us to be good and godly and righteous and kind, our hearts need a makeover. Even David, after this story, in the Psalms, we hear him pouring out his heart and he asked God to put a new heart within him, to create in me a pure heart. He realizes that his heart, his desires, his inner being has led him astray and he needs God in that moment to steer him back on the right path. So what can we take away from this? We have David, this man after God's own heart. He is blessed not only to be a great leader, but also to be the great, great, great few more greats in their grandfather of Jesus. Jesus, the one who would come on earth to live the only life that didn't fall into these prideful and arrogant mistakes that we often find ourselves in. And despite him digging a hole for himself, he is still able to come back because he acknowledges his mistakes. He takes ownership for them and he asks God to continue to work on his heart. Then we have Nathan, the man who is willing to come to speak truth to the king. Not something that people would have taken lightly. He could have been executed or who knows what else. Are you someone who is able to speak into the lives of others? If someone around you is messing up, do you go out on a limb and kindly try to find a way to show them where they veered off the path? And you have people like Nathan, if someone came to you and said, hey, I don't know that this is the greatest thing. I don't know if this choice, I don't know if this whatever is really going to lead you to where you want to go. Are you going to be able, like David, to say, you know what, maybe you're right and take a moment to repent? Or are you going to get angry and justify and push back and eventually lead yourself to a place where there's no one who's willing to speak to you? And in this moment, God forgives him. In Romans 8, it says, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Again, our heart can lead us astray, our desires can lead us astray, but when we allow ourselves to be in line with who Jesus is, it will always lead us, maybe not to the easy life, maybe not to a luxurious life, but to a life filled with purpose. And for sure, a life that will be filled with far fewer regrets than one lived without him. So whether you're here watching because you're a part of our church and you've been a follower of Jesus forever, or you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is, how is your heart today? Are you willing to make room in it for God to be the guiding force, to follow the way of Jesus, to live a life minimizing regrets, filled with purpose? I promise you that even though maybe it's not always easy and there is sacrifice, there is no better choice to guide our hearts by his principles. God, we thank you for your heart. We thank you for your love. I pray in our lives that we would choose to follow you, that we would choose to let go of who we are, to let go of the things that maybe we want and that we would allow you to speak to us, to steer us away from the troubles that we will get ourselves in, that we would not dig holes 
but that we would bring a humble and open heart to say, I'm sorry, help me to do better tomorrow. God, we thank you that you continuously forgive us despite our many, many mistakes. May we guard our hearts against the things that we can do to ourselves in Jesus' name.